Dear church family, let me begin this evening with perhaps a simple question, but biblically speaking, a very important question. The question is this, when hard times of any sort come into your life, and they do in all of ours, when they come into your life, how do you respond? How do you respond? When sickness hits a loved one or maybe touches yourself. Or when you go through a time of relational strain with someone else. Or when perhaps your children go through a time of straying. Or maybe when times of stress at your work seem to just skyrocket out of control. How do you respond? Now, I, I'm sure that we could think of many right biblical responses to that question here this evening. There's a time, of course, for deep sorrow in times of grief, in times of sickness, in times of someone passing. There's a place for deep wrestling with the Lord when the Lord brings us into hard circumstances. There's a place for for waiting patiently upon the Lord. There's a place for persevering through hardships. There's a place for a divine contentment in our hardships. There's a place for loving others around us in hardships. There's a place for sharing the gospel even more vigorously in our hardships. But as we come to this short text this evening, we see a response that we can't afford to miss if we want to live biblically faithful lives. Paul gives it to us in verse 4 of our chapter. He says it this way, Simply rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So don't only persevere through hardships. Don't only wrestle with the Lord in hardships. Don't only grieve. But also, rejoice in the Lord. Now Paul gives this remarkable command to this church family in Philippi near the end of the book. But if you work your way through the chapters and maybe you can read some of those chapters this evening, you will see that Paul doesn't give this command to the Philippian church simply out of principle. He doesn't give this command simply because he knows he ought to tell them to rejoice. He doesn't give them the command because he's trying to guilt them into rejoicing. He's giving them the command because he loves them. He loves them. He cares for them. He's on his knees pleading with the Lord for them. He longs to be with them. And yet, as we look at this book, we see something difficult. We see that although Paul wishes to be with this church, although he loves them, although he 
is attracted to them and desires to be in their midst to minister to them in person. Paul is in prison. You see that in chapter 1. So Paul's life, we could say, is, is in a state of tension. He longs to be with this church that he loves, just like we perhaps long to be with our family when we're away. But he's separated from them. He can't be with them. And then to add to the tension in Paul's life, we see in chapter 1 that persecution is on the horizon for the Philippian church, maybe already in their midst. And on top of that, Paul says, there are also these beginnings of strife and division in the church. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he hates division in churches. It's a sign of the working of the devil when there's division and strife, at least a bad kind of division and strife. And then in chapter 3, Paul also mentions that there's these false teachers that are weaving their way into the church and beginning to disseminate just slightly warped doctrine that is stealing the church away from Jesus Christ. And so Paul, we could say, is in a difficult place. The people that he loved are going through hardships, and he can't be with them. And yet the remarkable thing is this, that despite all of these problems in the Philippian church and in Paul's life, the theme of this letter is not a theme of sadness. It's not a theme of grief, a theme of mourning or or anxiety. The theme that carries its way all the way through this book is the theme of joy. Again and again you see it. The word joy pops up. He's rejoicing. He wishes for them to rejoice. He wants them to fulfill his joy. This letter is filled with joy. Now maybe we are here this evening and we've gone through a hard time in our lives. Or maybe we're going through one now. And someone has come up to us and they've said, well, listen, uh, you just need to rejoice in the Lord. You just need to rejoice in the Lord. And we've heard that and perhaps we've said, well, how? How do I rejoice in the Lord when I'm going through this difficulty or that hardship? And so it's my hope this evening to go through three questions concerning this topic of joy that I hope will enable us, even if only in a small way, to grow in Christian joy. The three questions that I want to answer this evening are, first, what is the character of joy? What is the character of joy? Second, what is the source of joy? Where does it come from? And third, what is the practice of joy? How do we practice it as Christians? So the character of joy, the source of joy, and the practice of joy. Well, first then, the character of joy. What does joy look like? How does joy act, if I can put it this way, in our lives as Christians? Maybe you've gone to someone and you've said, uh, can you define for me joy, Christian joy? How would you respond? Well, from the scriptural knowledge that we have of joy, we can give a number of definitions. But before I give those definitions, perhaps when we think of the word joy, we think, and I, children, maybe I can speak to you, 
we think back to fun family times, maybe times with friends, maybe now that school is out, I believe it's out here or soon to be out, you think of the long summer vacation ahead of you, time with friends, joyful times, or maybe you receive that perfect gift for your birthday and you think this is joy. Or those of us who are older, maybe we think of, uh, of a time of good conversation with a friend or a time of sweet fellowship with our spouse. Or maybe we receive a wonderful answer to a, a, a problem in our lives and we think of joy. Now, while it's, it's good and it's fine to think of joy in these terms, in terms of these experiences, we need to realize that Christian joy is a joy that goes deeper than the feelings that we get from the circumstances and the experiences in this world. And we know this, don't we? We can feel happy and on top of the world when the sun is shining on our life, but then those clouds roll in, don't they, so quickly, and our emotions can plummet, and our happiness seems to be gone. So Christian joy needs to be a deeper thing than purely emotions coming from circumstances around us. To use several examples, Christian joy is not so much like a flower, a garden flower, that pokes its head out of the ground and lasts for a short time and then wilts away. That's not what Christian joy is like. Christian joy is more like an oak tree that has its roots planted deeply within firm soil so that when the storms of life begin to blow, it remains firm in the ground. Children, maybe you've seen that. You've seen an oak tree or a similar tree and the windstorm comes up and you see the branches moving and maybe even the leaves are flying off. But what's happening deep beneath the surface of of the earth? Those roots are steady there, aren't they? They're grounded deep in the soil. And that's what Christian joy is like. Or maybe I can give another example. Some time ago I was watching some drone footage of a of a drone that had gone into the eye of a hurricane out in the ocean. And you could, it was somewhat chaotic, but you could just see those waves towering up and, and, and flowing over. And you look at that scene and you think nothing could survive that scene. And yet, I was thinking about it. What happens if you go deep, 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 deep below the surface of the water? It's calm, isn't it? That's what Christian joy is like. It's rooted deeply beneath the surface of the storms of this life. And this was precisely, this was precisely the joy that Paul had. Outside, we might say in Paul's life, the storms were raging. He's in prison. And, and prisons back then were not, in Roman prisons anyways, were not uh, correctional facilities where people would be rehabilitated to be put back in society as we have more often today. But prisons were usually holding cells for the prisoner to come before the judgment or for the prisoner to receive his judgment. And at times, that was death. And so Paul was not in a happy place. And yet, we see in this letter, as I've already said, that joy seems to be coursing through his veins. He can't keep joy out of this letter. Yes, the storms are raging, And yet, joy seems to flow out all the more from Paul's lips. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And so joy for us, 
as we sit here this evening and joy for Paul and joy for the Philippians is something that is deep-seated. It's something that goes deep beneath the surface of our lives, if I can put it this way. It's a happiness that cannot be removed ultimately by difficult life circumstances. But this raises a question, doesn't it? If our happiness is something rooted deep beneath, even outside of ourselves, then what is that place where it's rooted? And that brings us to a second question, doesn't it? What is the source of Christian joy? Where does joy come from? Well, Paul gives us the answer very clearly in this text. You can look at it with me. In fact, we might even miss it because it's so simple. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So it's the Lord that's the source of our joy. It's the Lord that's the object of our joy. Like water that comes out from a fountain, or children, you can even think of water coming from a tap. Joy comes from the Lord. He is the source of our joy. And so Paul doesn't look at the Philippians and say, listen, Philippians, I want you to rejoice in your circumstances. Although there's a time for that. He doesn't say rejoice in your wealth or rejoice in your health or rejoice in the fact that you have a wonderful family. All good things, but Paul doesn't go there. He goes right to the root of joy. He says rejoice in the Lord. You see, Paul knew Paul could see what was happening in the Philippian church. And he knew that if the Philippians didn't get their joy rooted beneath the circumstances of life, then when those storms came up of persecution, of false teachers, of division, then they would be blown over. So he wanted them to place their joy in the Lord. And as we look at our lives here, we have to admit, don't we, that we can so easily root our anchor in the shallow areas of the circumstances of life. We've got many pleasures in this country, many good things. The Lord has given us immense blessings. But, God, but Paul calls us, doesn't he, through this passage to root our joy deeper than that. Now maybe some of you are here and you've had times when storms have arisen in your life. And God has changed those circumstances from sunshine to cloud, from calm to storm. And, and you've found that as the storm comes, so goes your joy. Your joy goes right out the window. And you look at the Lord and you say, Lord, why are you bringing this into my life? Now, if the devil was to answer that question, he would say to you, well, the Lord is bringing these hardships into your life because the Lord wants to destroy you. The devil, as the father of all lies, loves to have us believe that. And yet if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, God does not bring storms into our lives to destroy us, but he brings them into our lives, among other purposes, to teach us to root our joy deeper, to root it deeper in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this should be a great comfort to us, shouldn't it be? Because if we're busy rooting ourselves in the pleasures of this world, well, those will pass. But if God teaches us in his providence to root our joys in him, then we will have the eternal source of joy. But then there's another point here that we need to think about as we think about this source of joy. 
And that is that the Lord as our source of joy is an indescribably satisfying source of joy. He's indescribably satisfying. If we're older here and the Lord has taught us, then we know that eventually material blessings, physical health, relational blessings cannot, ultimate, cannot ultimately satisfy us. Ultimately, they can go away or if we put our stock in them, they will leave us dry, looking for something more as we spoke of this morning. But David, as we spoke of this morning, and Paul here this evening, knows that joy must be rooted in the Lord. Now maybe you hear this and you say, well, why is it that my source of joy needs to be in God? What is it about God that makes him the source of joy? I can't see God. I can't touch God. I can't control God. I can't make God give me what I want. So why should I make God the source of my joy? Maybe you're even sitting here today and you think I want nothing to do with God as the source of my joy. Well, Scripture gives us a remarkable answer to this question. First of all, it teaches us that God is the source of our our joy because God created us to be satisfied in him. He didn't create us to be satisfied with marriage, as wonderful as that is. He didn't create us to be satisfied in children or in a good job or in money. He created us to be satisfied in himself. We spoke this morning of Adam and Eve in the garden and how the devil tempted them to take the fruit. Well, I want to ask you a question about that scene. What do you think was the most satisfying thing to Adam and Eve in the garden? We don't know how long they were there. Some speculate that it was only a few days. Some think a lot longer. But in their time there, what was the most satisfying, joy-giving thing that they experienced? Was it the delicious fruit trees? Was it fellowship with each other? Was it having control over everything? Well, Scripture doesn't give us a specific answer, but I think we know from the rest of Scripture that it was walking with God in the cool of the day, fellowshipping with Him, finding in Him their true delight. That would have been their ultimate source of joy. But there's another answer to this question. Yes, we were created to find our joy in God, but there's also the reality that if we are not in Christ here this evening, then we have no joy. And God has provided, even to us, outside of Christ, an answer to our joylessness in the gospel. That's the second thing. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Adam and Eve again. They take that fruit, they eat it, and from that moment on, they know. They know that their relationship with God is broken. And God shows them that, doesn't he, by exiling them from the garden. And yet, the remarkable thing is that in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God gave to Adam and Eve also, in picture, and to all of us here today, a means to come back to God, to find our source of joy in God through 
Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this evening and you look at your life and you know, you know, if you're honest with yourself, that you do not have Christian joy. Yes, you maybe enjoy things with family or with friends or other things, but you don't have joy in God. Then come with me for a moment to the cross of Jesus Christ. Just meditate for a minute upon that cross. Think about what God was doing in the cross. What was Christ doing in those hours upon the cross? He was carrying our sins. Think about that cry that came out from his mouth. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why was Christ forsaken? That question has really rolled through the ages to us today, hasn't it? Why was Christ forsaken? Well, he was forsaken, Scripture teaches us, that we might never be forsaken. He was deprived of joy upon the cross that we might have joy in him. One man put it this way, Richard Baxter, perhaps you know him. He said, all Christ's ways of mercy tend to and end in the saints' joys. He wept, sorrowed, suffered that they might rejoice. He sendeth the Spirit to be their comforter. He multiplies promises. He discovers their future happiness that their joy may be full. And maybe we are here this evening and we know this joy. We remember perhaps the moment or over the years as the Lord revealed to us Christ and we placed our trust in Christ and our sins were washed away and we had that joy break out in our heart greater than any joy from human circumstances and we truly rejoiced in the Lord. You could finally look to the Lord and say, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. And we had that deep peace, that deep peaceful joy in the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? A glorious thing, the best thing in all the world. But if you're here this evening and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't know joy, then you need to find the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? Martin Luther wrote once in one of his works that it is not possible for a heart to rejoice in God before it believes in him. Where there is no faith, there is only fear, apprehension, dread, and terror at the mere thought or mention of God. Yes, hate and hostility towards God dwells in such hearts. Then he goes on to say this. He says, to try to tell these hearts about joy in God is just like if I tried to command water to burn. It simply cannot happen. So can I ask you an honest question here this evening? Do you lack Christian joy? And if you lack Christian joy, is it because your conscience is still filled with sin and with guilt? It hasn't been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. You see, this is the foundation. You must be right with God if you would have joy in your life. One Puritan man put it this way. He said, never does a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is till once being weary of itself, it renounces all propriety, gives itself up to the author of its being and feels itself become a hallowed and devoted thing and can say from an inward sense and feeling, my beloved is mine and I 
am his. And so this text calls us, if we don't know the Lord, to come to that fount that is opened for sin and uncleanness and to wash ourselves, to wash ourselves of that joy-robbing sin and be reconciled to God. But perhaps we are here and we do know this joy. And yet, as life goes on and we continue our Christian walk with the Lord, we find so many times that we struggle to maintain our joy. What's the answer, we say, when we struggle with joy as Christians? How do we maintain joy as Christians? Well, Paul gives us part of the answer to this question at the end of our text. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We could translate it this way. Again, I will say, it's in the present tense, I will say, I will keep on saying rejoice. Paul wants this command to ring in the Philippians' ears. He wants them to hear it day in and day out. He doesn't want them to forget it. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't just want them to rejoice when they're in church on Sunday. He doesn't just want them to rejoice when they're having a good time with friends or family. He doesn't just want them to rejoice when a good turn happens in life. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't want them to live a moderate life of rejoicing. He wants them to be, if I can put it this way, extremists in rejoicing in the Lord. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord always. But maybe we say to Paul, well, Paul, but how? How can I rejoice after a long, exhausting day at work? Or how can I rejoice when the kids have been terrible at home? Or how can I rejoice when I'm going through a time of darkness in my life? How can I rejoice when life feels meaningless? How can I rejoice in sickness? How can I rejoice when, my, when a loved one passes away? Paul, how? Well, I want to answer that question with seven principles that are drawn from Scripture on how we can rejoice in the Lord always. Seven principles. The first one is this. We need to admit, we need to admit that we cannot create joy in our lives. We cannot conjure up joy in our lives. We cannot speak to ourselves and say, be joyful, and we will be joyful. We are not God. We cannot create joy. But the flip side of that is that God can create joy. God can. God does. God is the source of joy. And that should drive us to our knees, shouldn't it? That should be the first step when we struggle with joy is to go straight to our knees and say, Lord, Lord, I look at my life. I'm I'm a joyless Christian. Lord, give me joy. That's the first thing. J.C. Ryle says about that, he says, he that prays little and coldly, he that prays little and coldly must not expect to know much of joy and peace in believing. So prayer. And then the second thing is faith. Faith. Joy is inseparably connected to an active faith. Joy is inseparably connected to an active faith. One man put it this way. He said, all other graces 
like birds in the nest, depend upon what faith brings into them. Take away faith and all the graces languish and die. Joy, peace, hope, patience, and all the rest depend upon faith. In other words, if we're living our life here today and we aren't daily exercising, if I can put it this way, the spiritual muscle of faith, faith in God's promises, then we shouldn't look at ourselves or look at others and be surprised if we struggle with joy. Faith is inextricably connected to joy. We must believe the promises if we would have joy. Prayer, faith, and then the third thing is confession. Confession of sins. If we wish to have joy, we must, we must, we must daily confess our sins to God. One of the greatest suppressors of joy in the Christian life is a guilty conscience, and we know this, don't we? To live in sin will rob us of all joy, but to confess our sins, to be washed in our consciences, to know that the Lord is ours once again, to know that we are in communion with him. This is what brings joy. So prayer, faith, confession, and then fourthly, duty, duty. Matthew Henry, who I'm sure we all know well here, says it this way. He says, it is our duty to rejoice in God. It's our duty to rejoice in God. That means that when you wake up in the morning and are tempted to complain, or when something happens in your life and you feel those complaining thoughts begin to come and your joy in Christ leaving, hear that command of Christ in your ears. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You are a soldier of Jesus Christ. If you are in the Lord, you must rejoice in the Lord. It's your duty. And then fifthly, we must not go out seeking the experience of joy as an end in itself. We must not go out seeking the experience of joy as an end in itself. Joy is not the ultimate thing. God is. And so if we are looking at God and saying, well, God, you are the means to my happiness, then we've got things backwards. He is the means to our happiness. But he must be first and foremost in all of our lives. Our joy flows from making God our chief end, to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I think you might find this very helpful if you struggle with joy. He says, if you want to be truly happy and blessed, if you would like to know true joy as a Christian, here is the prescription. And Lloyd-Jones was a doctor, so he's speaking in medical terms. Here's my, my medicinal prescription. Blessed or truly happy are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, not after happiness. You catch that. He continues. He says, do not go on seeking thrills. Seek righteousness. Turn to yourselves, turn to your feelings and say, I have no time to worry about feelings. I am interested in something else. I want to be happy 
but still more I want to be righteous. I want to be holy. And he goes on, he says, set your whole aim upon righteousness and holiness, and as certainly as you do so, you will be blessed. You will be filled. You will get the happiness you are longing for. Seek for happiness and you will never find it. Seek righteousness and you will discover that you are happy. It will be there without your knowing it, without your seeking it. Or we might put it very concisely in the words of Jesus himself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, including joy, will be added to you. That's the fifth thing. And then sixthly, we must be willing to work hard for joy. We must be willing to work hard for joy. Thomas Brooks says this. He says, God has made a separation between joy and idleness, between assurance and laziness. And therefore, it is impossible for you to bring these together that God has put so far asunder. The lazy Christian has his mouth full of complaints when the active Christian has his heart full of comforts. And so we need to be careful not to go around complaining that we have no joy in the Lord if we are not in the word, using the means of grace, praying, fellowshipping with others. God gives his joy, normatively speaking, to the diligent Christian And that brings us to the last principle. And I will end with this. I'll give it to you in the words of the theologian and pastor Charles Hodge. He says this, To be in Christ is the source of the Christian's life. To be like Christ is the sum of his excellence. To be with Christ, to be with Christ is the fullness of joy. To be with Christ is the fullness of joy. Maybe some of you remember this passage in the Song of Solomon when the bride of Christ, typifying the church, finds the bridegroom. And she says these words. She says, I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. Why? Why would she not let him go? Because in Christ, because in Christ was the fullness of her desire and the fullness of her joy. And so if we wish to have joy in our lives as Christians, let us seek to be with Christ. Let us go to him. It's amazing. He gives us so many opportunities to be in his word. We can wake up in the morning and go to be with the Lord. We can be with, be with the Lord in Bible studies. We can be with the Lord as we fellowship with others over coffee. We can be with the Lord in his house of prayer. So if you lack joy, go to be with the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. And you know, the beautiful thing about all this is, is the reality that if we know the Lord in this life, if we find our joy in Christ in this life, then this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of joy. Heaven will be a world of joy. Christ will greet us, won't he? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he will entertain us with joy. 
We read that in Zephaniah, don't we? He will rejoice. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And there we will be filled with joy. To pull from Peter's words in 1 Peter, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Peter is speaking about before the return of the Lord. Can you imagine the joy when Christ returns, if we are in him? It will be wonderful, beyond comprehension, a joy that we can only dream of in many ways here below. Samuel Rutherford, in his hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, put it so well. He said, O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There too an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And so do you long for joy here this morning? True joy? Real joy? Then rejoice in the Lord. Go to the Lord. Seek him, and he will be found of you. Cling to him, and you will find joy. And when you find that joy, when you find Christ, then you will truly be obeying this command. And you will go into eternity obeying this command to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice and to do it always. Never a a stopping point in your joy. What a wonder that will be. Well, I pray that that is and will be the case for each one sitting in this room this evening. Let's close in prayer.